welcome to Understanding Christianity. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I'm also a professor at Colorado Christian University, and we're so glad that you're choosing to listen today. And what I want to talk about today is a pretty controversial theological subject. It's a subject that has divided Christians over the centuries. It has caused heated debates. It has brought uh, a strong amount of emotion on both sides. Uh, there's differing opinions, sharp differing opinions. But it is a doctrine that is taught in the Bible that every Christian needs to struggle with. It's something that you as a Christian need to come to grips with. And you need to understand why you believe the way you believe. And what's your basis for that? And so I'm going to argue for a, a particular viewpoint when we talk about this subject. And you're probably wait, with waited, waiting with bated breath. What's he going to talk about? I'm going to argue what I believe the Bible teaches, but I also want to present some other views as well. And the main thing for me is that you be a good Berean. Um, in Acts chapter 17, uh, the Bereans, the Jews in Berea, um, search the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. And so that's my desire for you, that you would search the scriptures to see if what I say is true and for you to come to your own conclusions and to know what you believe and why you believe it. And so you're probably thinking, what is this controversial subject that I'm going to talk about today on this podcast? Well, it is the doctrine of election the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of God's choosing individuals for salvation. Now, there have been some labels throughout history to identify uh, these different views. Um, back in the Protestant Reformation time, in the 1500s and the 1600s, this debate waged in the Dutch church. Uh, there was a group of um, what were called Arminians, they were followers of a theologian named Jacob Arminius. He was in the Dutch Reformed Church, and they were called the Remonstrants, and they came up with the five points of Arminianism as a way to establish what they believe the Bible taught about these doctrines in contradistinction to the Dutch Reformed Church. The Synod of Dort met to kind of deal with the five points of Arminianism, and they came up with really what are called the, the five points of Calvinism. Unfortunately, um, Calvinism is the name, and a lot of people don't like that because they think it's, it's, it's a system named after a man. As a matter of fact, John Calvin never really came up with the five points of Calvinism. Yes, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion and in his commentaries and in his writings, he d definitely believed strongly in, in the doctrine of predestination. But unfortunately, the, the system has been named after him when really it was the Synod of Dort that came up with the five points. And so even f way back from the Protestant Reformation, there's been the Calvinistic or Reform view, and there's the Arminian view of election. In recent years, there's another viewpoint um, that, quote-unquote, traditional Southern Baptists, there's, there's a resurgence of this group of Southern Baptists, and I'm a Southern Baptist, but I uh, would lay my cards on the table. I'm, I'm a Calvinistic or a Reformed Southern Baptist, and so I'm going to be arguing from the Calvinistic or the Reformed viewpoint of unconditional election um, as opposed to Arminianism, which is the conditional or foreseen election viewpoint. But there's a third view. Um, it's called corporate election. And this is more of a viewpoint that um, recently has gathered some steam among Southern Baptists um, who, who don't like Calvinists or who, who are basically identify themselves as non-Calvinists. And so it's what's called the corporate view of election. And I will explain that as well. And so what I want to do is I want to navigate this difficult water of, of, of trying to understand what the doctrine of predestination or election is. And I want to begin by, by, by just laying out a, a challenge to you. I, sometimes when this subject is talked about, there are people that I meet that say, you know what, I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in predestination. They're very adamant. And I stop them very kindly and say, now, wait a minute. You've got to believe in predestination because it's taught in the Bible. 
The issue is not whether you're going to believe in the doctrine of predestination. The question is, which viewpoint are you going to hold to? Which belief system or which viewpoint or which doctrine of predestination are you going to subscribe to? Because the word predestined actually shows up in the Bible. So there are three key passages that I want to look at this morning. Actually, I'm recording this this morning. You may be listening to it whenever on podcast, but it just happens to be morning here. Uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Um, we're going to look at Romans, we're going to look at Paul, and then we're going to look at Jesus. And we may look at a couple of other things depending on how my mind goes as we look at these things. Um, Romans chapter 8 is what has what we call the golden chain of redemption. And let me just give you a little bit of background on the book of Romans. The structure of the book of Romans goes like this. Chapter 1, Paul makes the argument that every single person is a sinner under God's wrath because they have suppressed the knowledge of the truth and that everyone's born sinners, but the power of the gospel is is the power of salvation to all who would believe. Chapter 2 of Romans, he says, Jews, in case you thought that you were getting off the hook, you're sinners as well. And then in chapter 3, he brings Jews and Gentiles together and says everybody is sinners. And so chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays forth this case that every single person born is absolutely sinful and cannot save themselves. Then in chapters 4 and 5, he introduces what we call the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The, The whole idea that we are saved by faith in Christ. When we trust Christ for salvation, His righteousness is credited or imputed to us. Our sin is credited or imputed to Him in this wonderful great exchange where we are therefore declared not guilty by the God of the universe. He can look down from heaven as the judge and declare us not guilty on account of the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us. Then in chapter 6 and 7, he starts to address the issue of Christian living, how because we've been saved, because we've been justified, that's not an excuse to continue to live in sin. We need to live according to the Scripture and according to the Holy Spirit and not according to the flesh. Then in chapter 8, he begins to unpack uh, the cosmic aspect of salvation, basically saying that at one time uh, in the future, Christ is going to come back and bring all things to completion. And until that time, the entire creation is groaning because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And then as he begins to talk about our future salvation, he kind of wraps everything up with this whole idea of this golden chain of redemption. And so let's pick up. In verse 29, Romans 8, 29, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then Paul goes on to talk about the beauty of eternal security, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In this passage, you have theological terms. Foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. You've got the terminology there of who can bring any charge against God's elect. So you've got the terminology there that God foreknew, God predestined, God elected. And so these terms are in the Bible. Now what I want you to know here in Romans chapter chapter 8 is that God foreknew a people or a person. It does not say, it says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For those whom he foreknew. For those whom. This is talking about individuals, those people for whom God foreknew. Now, one of the views, the Arminian view, is going to argue that what God foresaw or what God predestined was not actually people, But what God foresaw was the choice or the repentance and faith of a sinner as they 
as God looked down through the corridors of time. So let me give you the Arminian viewpoint here. Uh, the Arminian or what we would call conditional election. You can call it the foreknowledge view, whatever viewpoint you want to deal with. And so Arminians look at this scripture and say, okay, we've got to deal with the terminology, God foreknew, God predestined. So, so how did God do that? Upon what basis did God predestine? On what basis did God choose? So the Arminian view is called conditional election. Now, why is it called conditional election? It's called conditional election because there has to be some conditions that have to be met by the sinner in order for God to predestine or choose them. So what are these conditions? Well, the conditions are that God has to foresee or God has to look down in time and see a sinner choosing Christ. And once God sees that, once God sees a sinner choosing Christ, he then ratifies that decision or he then chooses them because he saw them choose him. It's conditional. There are some conditions that have to be met. So let me give you an example. I've given this example many times. So if you've listened to other podcasts or sermons, it's the same, it's the same example, but I think it's helpful. Let's pretend that there is a young girl named Sally. And Sally is 12 years old. And this is 1985. So she's 12 years old. It's 1985. She spends a week at youth camp. She's, she's a sixth grader. It's her first time away from home. She's um, just really enjoying the camp experience. Each night, the, the, the pastor, the camp pastor is presenting the gospel. And he's presenting it powerfully. And each night, um, he has an altar call. Uh, which is a subject for another podcast altogether. Um, I'm not a big fan of the altar call, but let's just say that there's an altar call where he calls uh, the kids to come forward, quote-unquote, to ask Jesus into their hearts, another term that you won't find in the Bible, and that's probably for another podcast. Um, I could go on a rant about that. Uh, let me just stop and just say this. I'll go on a rant. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I guess, I guess I have the, I have the floor as <laughs> this is the podcast that, I, that I'm choosing to do. We, um, especially in Southern Baptists and in some of the revivalistic, um, streams of evangelicalism have adopted a lot of measures or a lot of practices that were really foreign to the church up until about the 1840s, 1850s with a guy named Charles Finney. Uh, Charles Finney was in a traveling evangelist who basically introduced what were called new measures where he basically invented the public invitation. He invented the altar call. Uh, at that time, it was called the mourner's bench, whatever you want to call it. But it's pretty much been adopted up to this day, and it's pretty standard in a lot of evangelical churches where a pastor will call people to walk forward as if there's something magical about the front of the building. And they walk forward um, going forward, and, and that was the terminology that I listened to all the time growing up. It, really, when I was growing up in a Southern Baptist church in Texas, the, the, the real issue that people talked about was not whether you were saved or whether you had repented and believed. The question was, had you gone forward? And which is a lot of confusion. What does it mean to go forward? Well, in their minds, going forward is synonymous with you trusting Christ for salvation. You had to go forward. You had to go to the altar. You had to, to make it public. And so you'd go down to the front. And, and, and basically the terminology they would use, especially with children, is you've got to ask Jesus into your heart. He's knocking on your door. He wants to come in. The choice is up to you. You've got to let him in. Jesus is a gentleman. He's not going to bust down the door. It's totally up to you. You've got to ask Jesus to come into your heart. That's the terminology. And some of you listening may think, well, what's, what's wrong with the terminology, ask Jesus to come into your heart? Well, number one, we never see Jesus using that terminology. We never see the apostles in Acts using that terminology when they're presenting the gospel. And we never see Paul teaching that. Now, we kind of understand what it means. You're asking Jesus to come into your life. But here's the problem. Here's some theological problems with that terminology. Number one, it makes Jesus passive. It makes Jesus at the command of you, the sinner. Basically, you're asking Jesus to come into your heart where you have all the power, you have all the ability. Uh, he can't do something until you allow him to do that, which takes away the sovereignty of Christ, the fact that, that he is the king. And so for you to ask Jesus into your heart, it almost sounds like he's waiting for you to do something and he's powerless until you as the sinner give him permission to come in. 
Secondly, what does it mean for Jesus to come into your heart? Because theologically, where is Jesus right now? Jesus is glorified in heaven with his resurrected body seated at the right hand of the Father. So so theologically, Jesus can't leave heaven and come into your heart. Now, we understand that the Holy Spirit, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Christ has sent the Holy Spirit to take up residence in our lives, to dwell in us and to unite us with Christ. And so we don't use the terminology, ask the Holy Spirit into your heart. We use the terminology, or I don't, but people use the terminology, ask Jesus in your heart. So it's confusing. What, what does it mean? The altar call, what does it mean? Do, do, do I go down? And usually here's what happened in, in the churches I grew up in. A person goes forward. They pray a prayer, repeat after me. And oftentimes it was a scripted prayer. And you were asked, do you really mean this? Are you sincere? You know, repeat these words after me. And, and you know, you, you would repeat the words. And, and then after about 30 seconds or 10, maybe, maybe 10 minutes of counseling, um, that person was then pronounced saved on the spot because they had, quote-unquote, asked Jesus into their heart. They had gone forward at the altar, and a counselor had, had presented them saved. And then the, usually what the pastor would do is he would stand up and say, so-and-so has come forward, and they've asked Jesus in their heart. If you're willing to accept this person into the church and willing to, 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 to praise the Lord that they have trusted Christ for salvation, give a hearty amen. And everybody would say amen, and they would come up after the service and greet that person, and they would automatically, you know, be, basically be a member of the church. And maybe later on they'd vote on them at a business meeting, but that's pretty much the church culture that I grew up in, going forward, altar calls, asking Jesus into your heart. And really that's more of an Arminian viewpoint of salvation it denies the sovereignty of god it denies the power of the holy spirit in regeneration and so you know at emmanuel we don't practice those types of things we don't use the terminology ask jesus into your heart we just don't use that we don't use it in our children's ministry we don't use it in our youth ministry i don't use it Uh, we use biblical terminology repent and believe that's what the bible says in mark chapter one it says jesus came preaching the gospel saying repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand the apostles preached, repent and believe. And so that's the terminology we, we, we use here, repent and believe in Christ. And we don't practice an altar call. What I do usually after the service is at the end of the service, I do provide a time of response where people can pray. And sometimes we'll have you know, times of prayer where people can, can come up to the quote-unquote altar, I guess you'd call it, and, and, um, and pray. But usually what we do is we, uh, basically at the end of my worship service or the end of my sermon, I'll say something like, if you're here today, and this sermon has, has spoken to you or God has been moving in your heart or you have questions or you want to know more or you just need prayer, we'll be available here after the service. Um, we'll be here up at the front and we'll have men and women that are willing to pray with you. And usually people will come up afterwards and talk and pray or we'll set up an appointment to spend time to talk with them uh, more than just 30 seconds at the at, at the end of a worship service uh, most of the people that have gotten saved in our church have come through our new members class where the gospel is clearly presented and and you'll hear this testimony a lot at emmanuel somebody will be um, sitting in the service for about six months and they're repeatedly hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel. And then uh, they'll come to the new members class, and then theologically it's unpacked for them what had happened. And they come to find out that they were actually saved in a worship service where they were truly regenerated. They trusted Christ for salvation in their seat. And, and, and then when they come to the new members class, it's explained to them kind of what happened to them. And then they have to give evidence um, through the application for membership, the questionnaire that they truly understand salvation. They've got to give their testimony. They've got to talk about the gospel. And then... They meet with myself or one of the elders to, to truly find out if they show evidence of regeneration. And that's, usually, that's kind of the way we do it here at Emmanuel. So that's a sidetrack. Let's get back to Sally, the Armenian view of foreknowledge. So Sally goes forward at the altar. She prays, quote-unquote, to ask Jesus into her heart. She repents and believes. It's 1985. It's at youth camp. Sally goes forward. She, quote-unquote, accepts Christ for salvation. Now, the foreknowledge or the Arminian or the conditional election view would say God in eternity past, before the creation of the world, before anything was created, God looked down in time to that point. So in eternity past, God looked down in time to that moment in 1985 and God saw, God had foreknowledge. He saw what Sally was going to do. And what did God see Sally do? God saw Sally choosing Jesus. So when God sees Sally choosing Jesus, he then chooses 
her. He chooses her based upon her choice of him. So I, I really don't even use the word choose because really God ratifies or God puts a stamp of approval on what he sees her doing. Now, if God looks down through the corridors of time and never sees a person trusting Christ, never sees a person, quote unquote, going forward, never sees a person repenting and believing, then God does not choose or elect that person because that person didn't choose Christ. Now, the problem with the, there's a bunch of problems with the conditional election view. Number one, it takes liberties with the doctrine of total depravity or total inability. Does not the Bible teach that humans are incapable of coming to Christ on their own? Does not Ephesians chapter 2 teach that sinners are dead in their trespasses? Romans 8 says, well, let me just read it. It's right here. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They, what's the greatest thing that pleases God? Trusting Christ for salvation. And it says those who are in the flesh, those who are sinners, cannot do that. Why, why cannot they do that? Why do they not have the ability to do that? Well, because the Bible teaches they're dead. They're dead in sin. They're under condemnation. And so a dead sinner cannot in and of himself or herself choose for Christ. They cannot do that unless the Holy Spirit first does a work. And so the unconditional election view has dead sinners choosing Christ for salvation and then God responding or reacting to that choice. The other problem with the foreknowledge view is this. In Romans chapter 8 where it talks about those whom God foreknew, it does not speak of actions that God foreknew. There's no doubt that God foreknows everything, that God has knowledge. That's not the argument. Obviously, God has exhaustive foreknowledge of all events, past, present, future, every contingency. God knows exactly what's going to happen. And what the Arminian says is God foresees or God foreknows the choice, the action. But that's not what the text says. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It's a person. It's an individual. God foreknew an individual. God set his electing love upon a person before creation and foreknew, foreloved, predestined that person. It wasn't as if God had knowledge. Yes, God has knowledge of what everybody's going to do, but that's not what choosing means. God doesn't look down the corridors of time and foresee what you're going to do. And then based upon what you're going to do, he responds and chooses you. That's, that's not, I believe, what the Bible teaches. That's the Arminian view. That's the conditional election view. That's the foreknowledge view. It has us in the driver's seat. It has dead sinners choosing without the role of the Holy Spirit. It has God foreseeing events and responding. And I just don't think the Bible teaches that. Because it says in the golden chain, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's the same person. If God foreknows you, he's going to choose you. And he's going to call you. And he's going to justify you. And he's going to glorify you. You are God's elect. So what's the Calvinistic or the Reformed or the unconditional election view? Well, this is the view I believe the Bible teaches. Unconditional election. Now, why is it called unconditional election? Well, the Arminian view was conditional, remember? There were conditions that had to be met by the sinner. God had to see you meeting the conditions of repentance and faith before he would choose you. Unconditional election says God does not have to see any conditions that you have to meet as a dead sinner. God simply chooses because He has the sovereign right to choose. He has the sovereign freedom to choose. And God does it according to the pleasure and counsel of His will alone, not in response to what sinners are going to do. So there's no conditions that have to be met. God doesn't look down the corridors of time and see what you're going to do and then respond. God chooses based upon His choice. Now, let's just look here at Romans chapter 9, which is a very, very difficult passage of Scripture, and there's a lot of intricacies and a lot of issues, and, and we really, for the sake of time, don't want to get into all of this, but you have to struggle with what um, Romans 9 is teaching. 
Romans chapter 9, verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done neither either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God made a sovereign choice of Jacob and Esau, individuals, before they were born. It says, before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So God did not look down the corridors of time and see what Esau was going to do, see what Jacob was going to do, and based upon what God saw them do, He was going to choose them. No, it says before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob that His purpose of election might stand. Not because of works, not because of anything that Jacob did. And it also says there, God has the sovereign right to have mercy on whom he has mercy, to have compassion on whom he has compassion. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has, has mercy. It does not depend upon human will. What is it? What, is the, what, is, what, what, what does not depend upon human will? God's freedom to choose. You know, in the Arminian viewpoint, the freedom of the will is what ultimately is the foundation for God's choosing. You have freedom of choice. You choose. You accept Christ. You have the ability. You choose. Then God elects. God elects. God predestines based upon your choice. Paul here says it does not. God's election, God's call, God's plan, God's choosing, God's sovereign right to have mercy on whom He has mercy does not depend upon human will. And it was done before you were born. Now, some people would say, and let me give you the third view here. The third view is called corporate election or group election. What people would argue, and this is more the traditional Southern Baptist view, that they don't want to... They don't want to go down the path of Arminianism. They want to say, you know, we, we, we see the foreknowledge view and, and we, we don't quite buy that. We don't quite buy the Calvinistic view. So there's this corporate election view. And they think that God here, or Paul here in Romans 9 is talking about nations, Esau and Jacob, that God chose Esau, I mean, God chose Jacob. It's national election. It's not about individuals. It's the fact that God chose Israel to be the carrier of the gospel and that all those who trust Christ will be included in that group. And so what corporate election says, which is really kind of weird, is that Christ is the one who is the elect one. Christ is the chosen one. And when you freely choose to accept Christ as Savior, you become part of the elect. You become part of that group that God had in mind. So God had in mind before time a group, the elect. And how you get into that elect group is by trusting Christ in time. So it's this nameless, faceless group out there that God had in mind that would one day trust Christ for salvation. And once you, it's kind of like this. God has a team. And the team is... Christians. And God had in mind this team before creation, but, but not individuals in particular, just the whole the idea of a team. And he sent Jesus to, to be the captain of this team, to die for this team, to be the leader of this team. And so Jesus is, is, is the one who, who is the, um, the leader of the team. But how do you get on the team? How, how do you get to be on the team? You weren't pre-selected to be on the team. You have to choose to be on the team. So at a point in time, when you become a Christian, when you trust Christ for salvation, you have chosen to get on God's team. And once you're saved, you're now part of the elect because God had in mind this team in eternity past, and the way you get on the team is by trusting Christ for salvation. The problem there again is, number one, it has dead sinners 
choosing out of their own free will to get on the team. And there's no idea of individual election of certain individuals before the foundation of the earth. So you've got the Arminian view, you've got the corporate election view, and then you've got the, the reformed or the unconditional election view. So let's turn to Ephesians and let's see what the Bible teaches about this. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Notice what God chooses. Even as He chose us. It's not foreseen faith. It's not God looking down the corridors of time, seeing what people are going to do. It says God chose us, individuals. God made a choice of His elect, an individual, when? The Scripture says before the foundation of the world. So before the world was created, God chose specific individuals to be saved, to be holy and blameless. And then it says he predestined us. It's a different word there, choosing and predestining us according to the purpose of his will. So you ask the question, well, why did God choose specific sinners to be saved? The only answer is it was according to his will. There was nothing in those people that moved God to do it. Those people were not any better, were not any more spiritual, were not more worthy. Every single person starts on the playing field, dead in sin, inherited guilt from Adam. Everyone's born in Adam. Everyone's a sinner. No one deserves salvation. And so God, God could be just not to save anybody. I mean, after Adam and Eve sinned, God could have said, we're done. Sent them to hell and it was it. So God has the sovereign right to show mercy to whom he shows mercy to. God is not obligated to do anything. Once you start with the premise that God is obligated to show grace, you've stepped outside the bounds of what grace is. What is grace by definition? Grace by definition is God's sovereign right to choose to show you salvation, grace, mercy, forgiveness, simply because He has the right to do so. He, you can't earn it. You can't demand it. God's not obligated to give it. If God was obligated to do it, then it would not be grace. It would be something that was owed you. It would be something that, would, would, that God owed you. So grace by its definition is something that God is not obligated to give. And God is not obligated to give it to everybody. God has the sovereign right to choose whom He wants to choose. Now, some of you may say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why would God choose some and not others? That makes God a monster. That makes God unfair. Well, let's talk about fairness for a moment. If you, God want, to be, if you want God to be fair then we would all get what we deserve. So you don't want God to be fair. Because if you want God to be fair, we'll get what we deserve, and every single one of us deserves hell. So God is not unfair in choosing some and not others. You can't say that God's being unjust. Because if God were just, that's the better terminology, if God were just, and He is, God has the right to send everyone to hell. God has the sovereign right to choose no one. God is absolutely just. God is righteous. God can do what He wants. He's in the heavens. He does as He pleases. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works out all things according to the counsel of His will. He's not obligated to do anything except for what... What he wants to do. He works out all things according to the counsel of his will, for the purpose of his grace, according to his good pleasure. And so God justly could send everybody to hell and not choose anybody. So for God to choose some and not all is not God being unjust. He's not being unjust at all. He's choosing to show mercy to a lot. Now here's the issue that some people will say. Man, I can't believe you believe that God chose just a small amount of people to be saved and left everybody else in their sin. 
Whoever said it's a small number? Whoever said it's a small number? In Genesis, God tells Abraham, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And that theme is reiterated all throughout the Old Testament. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, when John gets a picture of heaven, he sees a a multitude that no man could count out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Those are elect of God. So, So I believe the elect of God, those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, are a multitude that no man can count from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. So it's not a small number. It's a large number that no man can count. And so God has the sovereign right to choose whom he wants to choose based upon the counsel of his will. He does it before the foundation of the earth. There are no conditions that have to be met because we can't meet those conditions. We can't, as sinners, in and of ourselves, meet the conditions. And even if if God were somehow making us meet the conditions, well, then even then you go back to the fact that he's making you meet those conditions. He's giving you the faith. He's giving you the repentance. And so even then, the question becomes that God's in charge of it all. Now, the Arminian will say, that makes God a monster. That's not fair. Because if God doesn't choose everybody, that, that's, just, that, that's not a balancing of the scales. I don't like that. But the Arminian has the same problem. Think about it. If God foresees all events and God knows all things and God looks down to the quarters of time and he sees people not choosing him, then why doesn't he intervene and choose them? If God could have chosen them because he sees them not choosing him, why doesn't God intervene and choose them? You've got the same problem. God could have chosen them, but he chooses not to. And their answer is, well, God values free will so much that he's not going to violate that free will. Let me just say this. I'm thankful that God violated my will because left to myself in my state of sin as an unregenerate sinner, I would never come to Christ. I can't take the scales off of my eyes. I can't replace my heart of stone with the heart of flesh. I can't remove the the deadness of my heart. I can't overcome spiritual deadness. I can't make myself alive. I can't cause myself to be born again. I can't regenerate myself. I I cannot please God. And so if God had not, quote unquote, overcome my deadness, I would have never come to Christ. So I'm thankful that Christ, or through the Holy Spirit, overcame my dead heart heart and gave me the gifts of repentance and faith so that I could trust in Christ because if not I would never come to Christ now those are Paul's arguments you've got Romans where the words predestined foreknew the elect in order that God's purpose of election God has mercy on who he has mercy you got Ephesians where it happens before the foundation of the world and so a lot of people go to Paul and say you know there's the teaching but I want to go to Jesus because I think a lot of times in John chapter 6 We don't get the full grasp of what Jesus is teaching. There's a lot of things that Jesus teaches in John chapter 6. Let me just give you the background. In John chapter 6, it's the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000, and they're just amazed. They actually want to make him king. They want to force him to be king. And so he withdraws. He goes to the other side of the, the lake because he, he, he wants to get away from the maddening crowd who really wants Jesus to be a miracle worker, to meet their physical needs. They don't see the spiritual reality of who he is. They just realize, hey, this guy can give us a free meal. This guy would be awesome. He meets all of our spiritual needs. It's almost like the prosperity gospel. They were, they were caught up in what Jesus could give them materially. And then Jesus confronts that and says, I'm the bread of life. You don't understand the spiritual reality. I'm the one who's come down from heaven. Just like you received manna in the wilderness under Moses, I'm the true manna from heaven. I've come down and I'm the bread of life and whoever eats of me will never thirst or hunger again because I can spiritually give you the true bread, not this physical bread that you're wanting, but you have to come and feast on me. You have to come receive me. You've got to come be a part of me. Let's pick up in verse 35. John 6, 35. That's the kind of the real quick setup here. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This particular passage of Scripture is the one Scripture that I struggled with that brought me out of a more Arminian viewpoint into a more Calvinistic viewpoint because I had to deal with what Jesus was saying here. I had to really examine what he was saying and ask some very serious questions of this text. So I want to take you through that journey that I went through. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay, you've got the Father giving a people. Okay, Jesus says all there, all. All that the Father gives me. And, we're, and the assumption is this is a group of people who are the all that the Father gives to Jesus. Well, if you take the rest of Scripture, this all are those who come to Him in repentance and faith, those who are Christians. So the Father gives a people to Jesus. And notice what happens. They will come to me. The idea of coming to Christ in the Gospel of John is synonymous with having faith in Christ. So are there going to be any that the Father has given to Jesus that will not come? No. It says all that the Father gives me will come. So there is a certainty, an infallibility, that every single person that the Father has given to Jesus will believe in Him. And what's their fate? Jesus says, I will never cast them out. So they're not going to lose their salvation. And He's going to raise them up on the last day, meaning they will experience the fullness of salvation. So there are people who come to faith in Christ, who will never be cast out, who will be raised up on the last day. This is certain to happen. Jesus doesn't say, you know, all the Father gives me may come to me. They may use their free will to not come to me. I've given them the choice whether they're going to come or not. No, it's very clear. Jesus says all. So we have to ask the question, well, who's the all that are going to come? Who are the all that the Father has given to Jesus? Well, if you take the teaching of Paul, it's those whom Jesus or those whom the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world. Those individuals, according to God's sovereign purpose, whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world, He has given those people to Jesus as a love gift. And what will happen to those people, to the elect? They will come. They will believe. They will trust. They will never be cast out. They will be raised up on the last day. Christ is going to lose nothing of what the Father has given Him. So is God the Father in any giver? Is He going to give something that, that's not going to happen? Is He going to make this promise to Jesus? Jesus, I've given you these people before the foundation of the world. I, I looked down to the corridors of time to see what they would do, and, and I gave them to you. But there could be the possibility that they may or may not come to you. Depending on how they use their free will, depending on what they do, it's all up to them. We're really not sure, Jesus. No, we have a sovereign God and a sovereign Savior and a sovereign Holy Spirit, the divine Trinity, who in eternity past covenanted together to save a people. The Father was going to elect a people. He was going to send Jesus to die for those people, and He was going to send the Holy Spirit to bring those people to life. So there's an inter-Trinitarian working of salvation to where all three members of the Trinity are working in unison to bring about the salvation of God's elect. All that the Father gives me will come. And so you've got the Father giving a people to Jesus, and those people will certainly come. So if somebody doesn't come to Jesus, if somebody doesn't have faith in Jesus, if somebody doesn't trust Christ, trust Christ for salvation, what, what can we, what can we um, deduce from that? They weren't given by the Father. They were not one among the elect. Those were not, they were not chosen by God the Father. They were not given to Jesus, and so they're not going to come. Now, let's keep going down here because the Jews grumbled at this. And anytime you talk about divine election, anytime you talk about predestination, people get upset. People don't like it. Their temper, they get irritable, they get nervous. And that's exactly what's happening here. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. 
But as he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44 is very, very crucial to understanding the inability of human beings to come to Christ on their own. No one can come. Now, again, what does come mean? Come in the Gospel of John, in the context of what Jesus is teaching here, no one can trust in Jesus. No one can believe in Jesus. No one can come. Now, just in your English translations, and in the English language, can can mean different things. No one can come. Is it speaking of permission or ability? No one has permission to come to me. You can't come to me because you're not allowed to come to me. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, even if you didn't know Greek, just the context in English makes it clear. But the Greek, the original language there, really is translated, no one has the inherent ability or power to come to me. No one has it within themselves. So, so why can no one come to Christ? Well, the testimony of Scripture says no one can come because everyone's spiritually dead. Everyone is under condemnation. Everyone is an Adam. We cannot come. We do not seek God. We cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot do the works of God. So left to ourselves as unregenerate sinners, no human being has the power to come to Christ. So that blows away this whole idea of free will. No one has the autonomous free will ability to just decide one day for Jesus. Jesus says that. No one can do this unless, there's a qualifier, unless something has to happen. What has to happen? Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God has to draw a sinner to Christ. And that drawing involves the effectual call. It involves regeneration. It involves making a person alive. It involves causing them to be born again. And what's the promise? Those who, let's, let's just follow the train of thought of Jesus here. All whom the Father has given me will come to me. And those who come to me, they will never be cast out. I will lose none of them, and I will raise them up on the last day. So salvation from first to last. God chose them in eternity past. They're going to come to faith in Christ. They're not going to be lost. And God's going to raise them up on the last day. So no person that's been given to Jesus from the Father, one of the elect, is ever going to be lost. But then Jesus says, well, no one can come. It almost makes it sound like Jesus is is contradicting himself. And he's teaching total inability there. No one can come unless the Father draws him. Now here's the question. Arminians, traditional Southern Baptists, others are not going to deny that God draws sinners. I mean, you, you hear it all the time. God has to draw them. God has to work. God has to convict. The Holy Spirit has to woo. No, we're not saying that, that a sinner can just in and of themselves come to Christ. We, we believe in whether it's prevenient grace or we believe in convicting grace or we believe in the work of the gospel. We're not saying that we have absolute free will where we can just come to Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody's going to deny that. That's not the issue. Every single evangelical that believes the Bible is going to say there's the role of the Holy Spirit in drawing a sinner to Christ. Here's the question, though. Does the Father draw everyone? Does the Holy Spirit convict everyone? Does the Holy Spirit woo everyone in the sense that the Holy Spirit can be resisted? Or that drawing can be resisted. Or you can say no to the drawing of the Father. That's where the rubber meets the road. The Arminian will say, God draws everyone. And you have the power to say no to that drawing. You can resist that drawing. God can try really hard to convict. The Holy Spirit can work hard. He can convict. He can woo. He can draw. He can really do a work to try to bring you to Christ. But at the end of the day, you can overcome that. You can resist that. You can say no to that. Whereas the Calvinist, or what I would believe, it says God only draws the elect. In the context of Jesus' argument here, God only draws those whom were given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. 
And only those who are drawn will be raised up on the last day. Is there a possibility that there's going to be people drawn who will say no and won't be raised up on the last day? No, it's from first to last. There are those who were given to the Father, I mean given to Jesus by the Father before the foundation of the world. They will come. Why will they come? Because the Father has drawn them and they will be raised up on the last day. If you take the Arminian viewpoint here, you have a very confused and convoluted trinity. You've got the Father giving people to Jesus, not knowing whether those people are actually going to come to Him or not. They can use their free will. Jesus says, well, they can't come to me. And so the Holy Spirit's trying really hard to draw everybody to come. And some people aren't coming because they're not responding to the wooing of the Holy Spirit. And so you've got the Father doing one thing and Jesus doing another thing and the Holy Spirit doing another thing. And, and they're really getting, they're getting confused and they're getting um, stymied because human free will has taken over and can't accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. Whereas what Jesus teaches here is from first to last, God is doing the work. The Father gives a people to Jesus. When does He give that people to Jesus? Before the foundation of the world, the Father elects them. Well, what happens in time? In time, the Holy Spirit works, woos, convicts, calls, and actually regenerates and brings the lost sinner to faith, overcomes the deadness of heart overcomes the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, causes them to be born again. And once the Holy Spirit does that for the elect person, what does that elect person do? They come to Christ. And if they come to Christ, is Christ going to ever cast them out? No. Is He ever going to lose them? No. What? They're going to be raised up on the last day. Down in verse 65, listen to what Jesus says. I'm sorry, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life The flesh is of no avail. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. The spirit gives life. In other words, you can't produce life. You can't come to Christ on your own. You can't choose for Jesus unless the Holy Spirit gives you life. And does the Holy Spirit do this for everybody? No, He does it for only those whom the Father has given to the Son. Verse 65, He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's granted him by the Father. Again, the Father must enable, the Father must grant. And does the Father do that to everybody? No. If the Father did that to everybody, everybody would come. And we know from the Bible and from history that not everybody comes. So why do people not come to Christ? They don't come to Christ because the Father hasn't given them to Jesus. They don't come to Christ because the Father has not drawn them. They don't come to Christ because the Father has not granted them or enabled them to come. That's why they don't come. It's not because they use their free will to say no. It's because they weren't given to Jesus by the Father. And what the Father gives to Jesus before the foundation of the world, He's going to ensure happens. That the elect will come and they'll never be cast out and they'll be raised up on the last day. Now, let's go to John 10 for a moment. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he's rebuking them, and he's giving them some pretty strong words. Jesus is talking about him being the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes takes it from him. He has the authority to lay it down. And let's pick up in verse 25 of John chapter 10. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Did you notice what Jesus said there? Why aren't they believing? Why aren't they coming? Because they're not part of the flock. Now, Arminians take this the other way. What comes first? You believe... First, and that puts you into being part of the flock. You choose Christ first, and then God looks down the corridors of time, and then He chooses you. So believing comes first. You, you choose to believe, and then you're put into the flock. You're put into the fold. You're, you're, you become a Christian. But Jesus says the exact opposite here. Why are they not believing? Why are they not coming? Why are they not being drawn? Why are they not receiving Jesus? Because they're not part of the flock. They're not chosen. They were not given to Jesus before the foundation of the world by the Father. And that was the Father's sovereign choice. 
not to give this people to Jesus that he's talking to. So the reason that they will never come to Christ, the reason that they're not coming, the reason they're not believing, the reason that they're not trusting is because they're not one of the elect and the Father won't draw them and the Holy Spirit won't convict them and they won't come because they're not one of the elect. If we go to John chapter 17, you've got Jesus' high priestly prayer. That he prays to the Father. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour in the Gospel of John is talking about the cross. It's, it's, it's leading up to the cross. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, Jesus has authority over all flesh. That's the whole world, all flesh. Jesus has authority over every single person, all flesh. Every person, past, present, or future, who's ever lived, Jesus has authority over them. But does that mean that they are going to be saved? Does that mean that every single person has been given to Jesus? No, what does it say? To give eternal life to all whom you've given him. There's only going to be eternal life given to those whom the Father has given Jesus. So all throughout the Gospel of John... You've got the Father having given Jesus a people. And you back that up with Paul. It happened before the foundation of the world. The elect, God chose them out of his freedom. Nothing that he saw in them, nothing that was worthy in them, nothing that moved him to do it. He simply did it because he decided to do it. And in time, the Father draws them and only them through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit only comes to the elect. The Holy Spirit's only going to sovereignly regenerate the elect. And once the Holy Spirit does that and draws and convicts and regenerates and causes to be born again, one of the elect that the Father's given to Jesus, that elect person will come. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come. They will believe. They will trust in Christ. And Jesus will never cast them out. And they'll be raised up on the last day. For the sake of time, let's just go to one other passage of Scripture. Let's go to Acts. Because there is a a, a time here where, Acts chapter 13, where Paul is doing a ministry to the Gentiles and it's it's getting towards the end of his first missionary journey. Um, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed now what did jesus just say to the pharisees back in john chapter 10 the reason you're not believing is because you're not my flock you're not believing because you're not the elect if you were one of the elect if god had given you to jesus you would believe you would come but you're not because it's evidence that you're not one of the elect now paul says this positively here as many as were appointed to eternal life believed what comes first Does believing come first or does being appointed to eternal life come first? Being appointed to eternal life is just another way of saying God chose them. Those that believed at that point in time, the reason they believed is because they were appointed to believe. God had chosen them. The Father had given them to Jesus before the foundation of the world. And at that moment in time when the gospel was presented to them, the Holy Spirit came to them, convicted them, regenerated them, and they believed. Why did they believe? Because they were of the flock. Why did the Pharisees at that time not believe? They weren't one of the elect. They weren't part of the flock. Why did the Gentiles here believe? Because they were appointed. They were a part of the flock. They were a part of God's elect. And God ensures that His elect, those whom He's given to Jesus before the foundation of the world, will come to Him. And so obviously, there are differing viewpoints on the doctrine of election of predestination. And obviously, you know, my viewpoint is the unconditional election, the Calvinistic view, the reform view, the doctrines of grace, whatever label you want to put on there. But I think Jesus teaches it, and I think Paul teaches it, I think the consistency of the Scripture teaches that God in His sovereign good pleasure before the foundation of the world, according to the secret counsel of His will that no one will ever know, decided to choose a great many of sinners to be saved The rest he left in their state of sin to suffer the just condemnation that all of us would have suffered if God had not intervened. And he did so out of his own sovereign grace. And it's not unfair. It's not unjust. It's an act of mercy. 
Now, just a point of personal uh, conviction here, personal thoughts. Uh, many times in my prayer time, when I'm praying to the Father, I'm in my quiet times, I, I thank Him for the, not, not every day, but there's times where I thank Him for electing me, choosing me. And it's not out of pride. It's not, oh, wow, God chose me because I'm so great, or I'm, I'm one of the chosen frozen, or, or I must have been so good that God chose me. No, I tell God directly, you very easily, God, could have left me in a state of sin as a reprobate and sent me to hell, and you'd be absolutely just in doing so. I could not charge you with any wrongdoing. But for reasons unknown to me, you chose in your sovereign grace to choose me before the foundation of the world to save me, and for that I'm eternally thankful. I'm humbled. It drives me to my knees. You know, Spurgeon said um, in one of his writings, I'm sure, I'm kind of quoting off of memory here, Spurgeon said, I'm sure God would, must have chosen me before the foundation of the world because I know He wouldn't have chosen me after I was born. And there's no reason that, that I could think of that God would choose me except for that He chose to do it according to the good pleasure of His will. And it's a mystery we live with. And it's an emotional issue. You know, it hits people at home, you know, the, the, the fairness issue. They, they don't like to emotionally deal with it. It's a hard topic. Why are some people saved and others not? It's a whole lot easier to make the final decision up to the person because then, you know, you can live with the fact that, you know, they're never going to trust Christ. It was them that did it. They used their free will. It's a harder pill to swallow to say, you know, they're never going to be saved because God and His sovereignty chose to pass them over and not elect them. It's a harder pill to swallow. And so I understand the emotional travail that you go through, especially if you have family members or friends and you, and you struggle with this. And let me just say this. We don't know the identity of the elect. We don't know who the elect are. You know, there's hyper-Calvinism out there that says you never pray for lost people, you never do evangelism, you never do missions because if God's got it all figured out, He's got it figured out, He doesn't need us. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God uses means. He uses our voice. He uses our going. He uses our money. He uses our resources. He uses our missions. He uses our evangelism. He uses our prayers to bring about the salvation of the elect. And we don't know who the elect are, so we share the gospel with everybody. Everybody's a candidate. All nations, all tribes. You know, on a Sunday morning when I look out and preach, I'm not thinking in my mind, well, you know, there's some elect out there and some not, and, I don't, and I'm just going to target my message to only those that show evidence. No, I look at every single person that I come across and witness to as someone who's a sinner, and I believe that they need the gospel. And just leave the results up to God. If they're chosen before the foundation of the world, I have the um, confidence that God's going to call out His elect and they will come. It takes a lot of the pressure off. I don't have to use manipulative uh, techniques or, or, or try to use slick marketing to try to get them to make a decision. I simply have to present the gospel and trust that the sheep, if you're truly of the flock, if you've truly been given by the Father, if you've truly been chosen, the Holy Spirit's going to bring you to faith. You will come. The elect will come. And you, you can go in confidence and preach the gospel to all creation knowing that God will call out His elect. And it gives you confidence. Now, just a final thought. This is a secondary issue. It's not a dogma, a hill to die upon. These are, these are doctrines that are secondary. We can agree to disagree. There, there's many differences of opinion. And so uh, we don't want to divide over this. You know, we can have strong viewpoints on this. But ultimately, my goal for you is for you to search the Scriptures, like I said earlier at the beginning of this podcast. Be a good Berean. You go search the Scriptures to see if these things are true. And if you come to the conclusion that you believe in corporate election, more power to you. If you come to the Arminian view of foreknowledge, more power to you. If you come to the, the Calvinistic view, you know, I'm thankful. You've come over to the right side. No, I'm, I'm just joking. But I would rather you go through the struggle of determining what you believe and why you believe it and be able to defend it biblically than to go by emotion, to go by tradition, to go by your past, to go by all these things that aren't biblical. At the end of the day, if you can make a biblical case and say, you know what, I've spent hours studying the scriptures, I've looked at this, I've read about this, I've prayed about this, and this is where I land, and here's biblically why, I'm, I'm fine with that. That's awesome. That is great because you've done the work to come to these conclusions, and you know what you believe and why you believe. And it's a secondary issue. It's not a hill to die on. It's not the virgin birth. It's not the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not the deity of Christ. It's not the authority of the Bible. It's not the, the bodily resurrection. It's not the, the reality of, of eternal hell and a, and a real heaven. It's, it's not the um, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. It's not the dogmas. It's a secondary issue. And so if you have questions about this issue, um, feel free to contact me by email. 
or go to our website, seancole.net, S-E-A-N-C-O-L-E.net. You can email me there. Um, You can find other sermon resources. Um, I'd love to answer your questions or interact with you. And um, hopefully uh, you struggle with this. It's a good struggle. Sometimes it's painful, but in the end, I think you come out more healthy having gone through the process of understanding what you believe and why. So thank you for listening to about this podcast, Understanding Christianity. Um, I hope you have enjoyed it. I hope you have a good rest of the day whenever you're listening to this. And uh, again, this is Pastor Sean. Thank you for listening.